Welcome to Free Thoughts, a podcast project of the Cato Institute's Libertarianism.org. Free Thoughts is a show about libertarianism and the ideas that influence it. I'm Aaron Powell, a research fellow here at Cato and editor of Libertarianism.org. And I'm Trevor Burris, a research fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. Socialism, as we understand the term today, is antithetical to liberty, specifically to economic liberty. But this wasn't necessarily always the case, or at least the term wasn't always used to mean centralized planning and control by the state. In fact, in the 19th century, there was a tradition of individualist anarchists who called themselves socialists while defending truly free markets. Joining us today to discuss this potentially perplexing topic is David S. D'Amato, an attorney and a senior fellow and trustee at the Center for Stateless Society and also a columnist at libertarianism.org. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Dave. Hi, Aaron. It's great to be here. So a while back, I had done this this video for libertarianism.org where I had asked answered the question, can libertarianism tolerate the existence of a socialist community? And in that video, I had defined socialism as something like centralized economic planning or total economic control by the state or basically the, the absence of economic liberty. And I had said that in that regard, an economic, a socialist state was incompatible with liberty, but a state that embraced liberty, a libertarian state, could tolerate voluntary socialist communities. Um, and you had written this piece for libertarianism.org partially in response to that video where you had argued that a lot of us might be struck – it might sound a little bit weird to talk about voluntary socialism, but in fact in the – in the 19th century or in the – Mostly 19th. Yeah. Mostly 19th century that in fact voluntary socialism was the kind of common understanding of socialism. Um, so I was wondering, can you, can you elaborate on that a bit? Like what, what would voluntary socialism look like? Sure. So even in the 19th century, uh, the, the figures that I was writing about used kind of equivocal, I guess, definitions of words that are very familiar to us. Um, and I, I think this is interesting because uh, today, uh, 20, 21st century libertarians don't tend to think of socialism um, as a voluntary system, as, a, as compatible with a free market system. And you have these figures in the 19th century like uh, Benjamin Tucker and Ezra Haywood and J.K. Ingalls, and, and they thought about socialism as basically how do we solve the social question? or the social problem. Um, and, and that gave them uh, an ability to use socialism in ways that are, are again, not, not very familiar to us uh, as libertarians, as free marketers today. And I, I think their use of socialism is interesting and is uh, worth, worth talking about. So, the, uh, so people like Benjamin Tucker, the people you mentioned, um, People today would often call them proto-libertarians, right. but do, would socialists also maybe adopt them as proto-socialists? Yes. Uh, I, I, I've seen Benjamin Tucker claimed by uh, social anarchists, uh, socialists, free market libertarians, uh, mostly by free market libertarians, however, just because I think that today's socialists are so uncomfortable with the idea of free market competition that uh, mo most of the time they'd rather distance themselves from from somebody with 
Tucker's views than than adopt them as a as a forebear. So maybe in some sort of weird perverse way, you could say that libertarians have forgotten some of our socialist roots, and socialists have forgotten some of their libertarian roots. I think I think that's exactly right, and that's one of the uh, one of the points of of my piece is just to just to bring attention to the uh, again equivocal ways that we use words like capitalism and socialism, and to try to get underneath those words to uh, uh, more substantive uh, more substantive views. So before we move into discussing some of their ideas, maybe you could give us a bit of background on who these people are you're talking about, uh, what sorts of stuff they were up to, and, and just, uh, just a bit on, on these individualist anarchists as you call them. Sure, sure. Uh, it's hard to know where to start, but I like to begin with uh, – Josiah Warren, who was um, to me the first, uh, the first real American individualist anarchist, and he was a, a socialist and a disciple of the, uh, the the businessman and sort of visionary um, Robert Owen, who I mentioned in the piece. And, and the substance of Josiah Warren's views were he molds things that uh, today, again, we wouldn't recognize as being related, but he thought of free market principles and the sovereignty of the individual as leading to a socialistic result, I guess. Um, and his, his whole set of views was based on the idea that the individual shouldn't be submerged. His experience with the, uh, the Owen colonies, as it were, um, taught him that if you if you tried to plan society, if you tried to have some external force uh, molding it, that you were going to get results that you that you didn't intend, and that you couldn't have that kind of system function as the the sort of socialism that we would want. So would this be based more on um, voluntarism rather than because a lot of people would think of socialism think of equitable outcomes, equality of, of ownership, equality of wealth, some sort of, of system that imposes that. Is this more about the idea that if voluntary people went in and participated entirely without power structures above them, the result would be equity by itself? Is, was that part of the idea? That's definitely part of the idea. Uh, one, of, one of Warren's more formidable and more famous tracts describes what he called uh, equitable commerce. And so to, to Warren, if you had a system where people were not forced to combine, he liked to use the word combination, and he likes, he likes to juxtapose combination to, I guess, the free movement of people and goods. And he, was, he, he inherited from Owen this idea of a labor note, and, and this is where we get into the, the labor theory of value. And he thought that the best way to preserve uh, what he considered to be this fundamental law of of the labor theory of labor inputs uh, creating value he he thought that the best way to preserve this was uh, free market free market competition and individualism to to a rather extreme a rather extreme individualism and and all of this they were contrasting with this this true freedom of markets they were contrasting with what they called capitalism. But typically, a lot of people today see capitalism as simply meaning the same thing as free markets. Right. Um, right. And yeah, today, exactly. Today, I think from largely owing to 
uh, figures like um, Ludwig von Mises and Ayn Rand, people people treat capitalism uh, as a uh, synonym for free markets. But uh, people like Josiah Warren thought that capitalism was a system in which capital and the rule of capital was paramount even to even to individuals freedoms and uh individual sovereignty so they they looked at capitalism as a system of coercive monopolization of wealth and they didn't think that that could exist uh under their their version of a a true a true free market And, and where does the coercion come in on that on that version of capitalism so their their idea was that capitalism represented and this is where we get into kind of the circular way that we use words and their definitions they thought that capitalism just meant a system of monopolization so monopolization of capital goods of land of ideas through intellectual property and in this this kind of is a segue into later on Tucker developed this idea of the four monopolies and he liked to hammer away at the four monopolies as a as a convenient way to describe what it was that individualist anarchists were uh, were in opposition to. And what what are those four monopolies? So the four monopolies are land, uh, tariffs, intellectual property, and money or banking. And and that would be uh, things that he thought were not natural to the voluntary order but rather somehow imposed right exactly he he set these up in opposition to a free market and and the you know we'll see that the economics of the individualist anarchists were basically a radicalized version of classical economics and they took uh smith and ricardo and and the like and they radicalized their ideas and they took the classical labor theory of value and they sort of envisioned i guess what you what you could see as a a free market in perfect equilibrium that would wipe out uh rent rent interest and profit which you know tucker called the trinity of usury let's for for our listeners who perhaps aren't familiar with some of the terminology that we're using let's ask maybe would be pretty simple questions but we we've talked about capital and you know this rule by capital but what what do we mean by capital so in this case capital here uh we mean we mean land and uh capital goods so uh the individualists would often compare sources of wealth that were uh natural to the the world and and they'd compare that with things that people could make so we could think about it in terms of comparing uh, land to chattels. So they they thought that it was only through the monopolization of of land and other natural resources uh, that that you could get rent, interest, and profit, which they considered to be unequal exchange. And that's what this is the the pivot point for them. They found any kind of unequal exchange to be um, to be odious i guess and unequal in in the sense of uh, bargaining positions or some coercive arm behind one part of the exchange i think they i think that they tried to think about it in terms of both uh and this is what for today's libertarians is very uncomfortable they did they did think that labor was the source of value 
but they also thought that people should be able to exchange um, in whatever ways they they wanted to. So they just happened to think that in a real in a real free market, without as you mentioned uh, unequal bargaining power, that you would get to a result of uh, perfectly equal perfectly equal exchanges or pretty close, which uh, most most libertarians today, having been influenced by sort of uh, marginal utility theory, don't and subjective theory don't hold to to those views anymore. The the labor theory of value, when when it's talked about today and kind of in a really simplified form, is often meant that you know the the value of a particular good, say, is just equal to the amount of labor that went into it. So if you know. One out, one worker took two hours to make a given product. That product is worth twice as much as one that only took one hour to make. Um, so we can kind of exactly measure the value of goods based on how much labor it took for each one. Is that is that the labor theory of value that they're talking about? Uh, it, it's close, but they they thought of the labor theory of value more as a gravitational pull, uh, if if you will. Uh, it was a tendency to them. It was again. It, it goes back to this idea that what they really were talking about was a free market in perfect equilibrium. Um, so they didn't. They didn't think that other types of natural rents, for instance, Tucker often talked about uh, natural rents attending different areas of property and some being uh, more valuable than others just for for natural reasons and. They didn't. Wait, wait, what do you? The natural rents there to clarify what, what so, does that mean? So natural rents would attend. Uh, say you had a, a tract of land that was uh, arable and and could be could be used for farming, and then you had a plot right next to it that happened to be rocky and un, un, unsusceptible to to farming. So. Tucker would admit um, that there would be natural rents attending the better tract, but he but he thought that the the more important issue was rents attending monopolization. And even today, we can think about uh, the difference in price in an oligopoly or a monopoly market versus a, a free market. And that might be getting too deep in the weeds, but this is a uh, so the point is that. They saw a difference between natural rents and uh, artificial rents that, that are created by the state in some way. Exactly. And and so you were talking about the labor theory of value, and uh, and their view of that, um, contrasting it to the libertarian view or sort of the Adam Smith view of other types of value, uh, mar the marginal utility and subjectivist, how do those come together or, or do they come together with the uh, libertarian socialists? I think, I think they do. Uh, uh, Lawrence Labadee, who is the son of Joseph Labadee, would talk, uh, would talk about the, the fact that the individualists were never trying to say that, that products had inherent value, which is um, sort of more of a, a spooky view. That wasn't really their idea of the labor theory. They just thought that uh, ways to create value without using labor happened to happened to usually use coercion, and they they clung to the the classical view of the labor theory that they got from Adam Smith. Though interestingly, as I mentioned, in I think I mentioned in my piece. 
it's unclear whether somebody like Josiah Warren uh, ever read Smith, and and he obviously gives a very clear labor theory of value with his uh, his phrase "cost the limit of price." But that, that I think it's possible to bring them together. Then let's I guess talk about this this trinity of usury idea. So the rent, interest, and profit, and maybe you could we could just step through those three of them and talk about what they meant by each one of them. Um, so just kind of broad definitions and then how they thought they were related to injustice to injustice or to, and to this coercion and how how it is that in, in the absence of that coercion, so in truly free markets, those things would kind of go away because I, I mean particularly things like interest and profits, um, many argue you know those are in fact crucial to the functioning of right. free markets. Right. Uh, yeah. So um, rent on real property, um, interest on money lent, and uh, and profit in exchange to the to the individualist anarchists were hints that something was wrong because they all represented the same thing, which uh, which was as I mentioned, unequal exchange. Um, and 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 they thought that this unequal exchange was made possible by state interference um, in, in a free market and state collusion with big business. So for instance, in banking, they, they theorized that the absence of government regulations would lead to a system of mutual banking or free banking um, in which anybody could, anybody could act as a bank and lend money and, and people could get lines of credit on um, the way they put it was anything sold under the hammer. So their own property, their own uh, capital goods, whatever it was that they had, cattle. Um, and they thought that this would undercut uh, a bank's ability if everyone was allowed into the market and there were no um, barriers to entry, uh, that this would undercut a bank's ability to take interest on money lent. But, but would they still say that that in that highly competitive system, there would eventually be no interest charged by anyone? Well, I mean, and that's that's where you that's where you get in. Even Tucker admitted that uh, interest would still be would still be possible uh, theoretically. And and you know, my view is that they vastly overestimated the ability of free market competition to uh, to undercut or undermine uh, rent, interest, and profit. And I think that was that was their mistake because again, they. What they were really talking about was an equilibrium theory, and I, I don't think that many economists today look at their economic ideas and think that they can hold water. But I think where they're useful is that, uh, on the other hand, today's libertarians may may vastly uh, underestimate the the equalizing force of competition. And so, by similarly, while you said the the idea that profits would go away uh, in a Voluntary system had to do with the, uh, the perfectly competitive market driving pro- profits down to zero. Mm. Yeah, and and this is what they believed. They thought uh, profit was just uh, unequal exchange again, and and they they envisioned. Uh, I guess you know this might take us to the the double inequality of value that that Rothbard talked about. They thought that everyone would profit uh, in exchange, but not. Not profits uh, in in the way that would be uh, 
something that uh, something objectionable. So they, they did admit that, you know, anytime anybody exchanged, obviously it would be because one person subjectively uh, valued what they were going to get rather than what they were going to give up. But they, they didn't see that as profit in the same sense. So, I mean, but would something as simple as like an example of like, me selling Trevor a painting I made for ten dollars when the painting only cost me eight to make, be you know, and then so there's two dollars profit. Let's talk about the injustice. Would that be a sufficient example? Uh, you know, it's interesting because I don't think that, and for obvious reasons, I don't think the individualists confronted a lot of the most common uh, objections to the the labor theory of value, and that's you know a very that that's one of those. Um, I think what they were getting at um, uh, is, you know, supposing that there's a widget factory and this widget factory relies on uh, government barriers to entry and government land monopolization. Um, It's going to be able to sell its widgets essentially at whatever price it decides. And if you can't go elsewhere or if your your options are, are limited elsewhere, even if other widget factories do exist, then they're going to have a markup um, that is because of coercive interference rather than uh, rather than legitimate competition. So I think that's sort of what they were getting at. So in that in the the idea of the coercion and sort of illegitimately gained uh, profits or or benefits of some sort. what we can see now with these, some of these critiques possibly or, or maybe issues that we have now because I, I, I Benjamin Tucker in particular wrote a lot about railroads mm-hmm. um, and, and different uh, sort of inequalities and coercive unfairness. So, so coming from those ideas now, uh, where do we find ourselves and whether we look at the world as a, as a fair place? Should we just ignore them or, or look at the world as a fair place now? Yeah, I mean, and to me, this is the real importance of uh, the individualist anarchists and their, and their legacy. Uh, they give us an opportunity to critique what we often incorrectly look at as just a just a free market or just a laissez-faire system, and and the railroads are a good example of that. Uh, when they when they built the transcontinental railroad in the in the 19th century, it relied on on land theft on a massive scale, on uh, government spending uh, on a massive scale, unprecedented at the time. And this was something that Tucker, who called himself a socialist, found found unpalatable um, for all the reasons that we would as libertarians today. And so would they have argued, I guess, what would they have done about it as far as, so you, you can point out that these, you know, the distribution of wealth in the society at any given time may not be just because it's the result of these coercive exchanges and government granted or supported monopolies and so on. But would they then have been in favor of just hitting a reset button in the sense of radical redistribution? Or how do you – how would they have moved from the unfree markets that they saw at the time to this – what they're calling a more socialist System. Right, right. Um, well, one of the one of the consistent currents that you find in the individualist anarchists, and they all had different uh, different opinions about how best to get from point A to point B. But 
you do find um, an anti-political and an anti-redistributionist current um, very strong, particularly with Benjamin Tucker. Uh, he he really, really didn't want the state in the business of trying to redistribute wealth because, uh, for obvious reasons, he thought that you know the state was a plutocratic entity that would serve the the interests of the powerful, and that it was impossible to think of uh, to think of the state as something that could be philanthropic or redistribute wealth in an equitable way. Um, they, they had a strong individualist streak and mostly I think they, they all also shared a belief that free banking would allow, uh, would allow people, the, the laboring classes to, to create their own enterprises and to be, most free from out of all the monopolies, they all hammered away uh, most most vigorously on on free banking, and they thought that this would be the way to free people from the yoke of uh, economic and political tyranny. So they'd have been big fans of Bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. I often think about uh, about William William Bachelor Green and Benjamin Tucker and Lysander Spooner when I'm thinking about Bitcoin because it's just the kind of experiment in free banking that I think they would have found very promising as a way to get people out of uh, these coercive systems that are sort of built up around us and and control the way we transact business and the way we uh, undertake enterprise and and the like. But would they also have been a big fan of Occupy Wall Street? Yeah, I think they probably would have. you know, Tucker was a skeptic and he was always above the fray and sort of uh, criticizing everything. But I think they would have found things to like about it because it it points at uh, economic inequality. And this was something that, um, you know, they thought liberty and equality were complements and not in not at loggerheads with each other as we, you know, libertarians today often tend to pit them against each other and they wouldn't have felt that liberty and equality were uh, in any way antithetical. And I think for that reason that something like Occupy Wall Street pointing to, you know, the collusion between the the, the big banks and the Wall Street banks and the Federal Reserve. Um, and they wrote at a time also when there was no no central bank and they and they still and they still saw, you know, all of these problems with uh, the banking system that that we had, and 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 of course, I mean, many libertarians have have made some sympathetic overtures to Occupy yep. Wall Street yep. now, in the sense of it being cronyistic and not true capitalism, right. And right. a type of mixed system that that is neither just nor nor free in any way. But but so between this sort of discordant thing that we that I mentioned previously, the the socialist roots of libertarians. And the libertarian roots of socialism. Yep. Uh, what happened? Or I mean, in the sense of this, these sort of late nineteenth-century people, did did something happen to make that division occur? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can see it happening at the end of the nineteenth century, and I think uh, part part of the reason for that is uh, some cultural differences between, um, for instance, uh, communist anarchists and and individualist anarchists uh, just had a lot of cultural baggage and cultural differences. For instance, there was a a back and forth between uh, Tucker and a communist, uh, Johann Most, who believed in sort of propaganda by the deed and violence against 
um, elected officials and capitalists. And this was something that uh, Tucker, like the libertarians of today, he he believed in sovereignty of the individual and wouldn't have been able to get on board with just random violence against uh, against different elected officials or, or businessmen. So you can start to see a split between the people who adhered to this sort of individualistic worldview. They put that in front of uh, essentially the socialist outcomes. And then, you know, in the beginning of the 20th century, you still see uh, the individualism, but now it's in people like uh, Albert J. Nock or H.L. Mencken, and they, and they sort of are becoming or beginning to look more like what we would recognize as a libertarian today. So the the issue here would have been violence, possibly, as the, uh, the I think center, that's the difference maker here, because the socialists, certainly some of them, uh, the Marxists. Uh, in particular, turn to violence as a completely justified, if not necessary, obligatory aspect of of their future state. Correct. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I think violence is one part of it, and uh, also, you know, just by the time by the time the teens came, the socialist movement had been pretty much fully uh, fully taken over, I guess, by people who did want to use uh, the the state to to solve to solve the social problem and the, the labor question and, and so forth. So uh, by the time you get into the progressive era or, you know, the, the later progressive era, you don't have people with Benjamin Tucker's politics of individualism. You don't, you don't see them uh, as part of uh, the, the socialistic, the socialistic movement anymore. So does this mean that in your view, do you have a, a idea of whether or not, libertarianism is of the left or of the right or whether or not that question is the right question to ask? Uh, I, I tend to think that libertarianism is on the left. Uh, even if you, even if you just call liber- today's libertarianism, the successor of classical liberalism and you leave out anarchism and you leave out socialism, I still think that, uh, libertarianism is pretty firmly, on on the left, uh, it, it's sort of an accident of history to me that it ends up on on the right uh, or as conservative. Um, the reason why it uh, ends up being conservative is because you you have uh, you have people trying to preserve classical liberal values in politics, so that ends up being conservative. But I, I do think that li- it makes more sense to think of libertarianism on the left. So, the, uh, but in between, would you, with people like Rand, um, or you mentioned Mises before, or even people like Barry Goldwater, uh, are they coming in from a different tradition? Would you say than than the uh, the left individualist voluntarist type of position? Um, you know, it depends. Um, Ayn Rand is sort of a special case, but I think you know, for instance, Ludwig von Mises is certainly um, he, he calls himself. Um, a liberal and Hayek similarly uh, makes sure that he's not identified with conservatism and that he, that his work and his legacy are uh, the successor of classical liberalism. So I think, again, even there, if we consider uh, you know well-known uh, well-known libertarians in the 20th century like Hayek and and Mises, I think they're they should be considered liberals, and in no way is there uh, is their work conservatism? 
How how do these 19th century individualist anarchists then um, relate to the modern school of what's often called left libertarianism? Yeah, uh, left libertarianism, you know, you can conceive of it in a few ways and it's it's sort of a broad category. So you might think of today's uh, anarchist communists as left libertarians or you could just think of uh, people people who make the same points as uh, the individualist anarchists about the difference between capitalism and free markets. You could think of those groups as uh, left libertarians. So I think it's often a question of emphasis and identifying with the right or the left since the fusion, the fusion movement sort of uh, linked conservatism and libertarianism in a way that many libertarians now find uh, find to be not such a good idea from a tactical perspective or or from uh, an ideological or viewpoint perspective. So left libertarianism could mean a number of things, but I think you could be a free marketer and be a left libertarian. So at the, but the, at the time that the individual anarchists were, were around and you had people like Herbert Spencer uh, who became kind of a, a pariah, a, a flag bearer for social Darwinism from the progressive viewpoint. But how about the relationship between Benjamin Tucker and Herbert Spencer or anyone else of the division at that time? Tucker was actually hugely influenced by Herbert Spencer and it's from Herbert Spencer that we get the idea of uh, – and the phrase, uh, the law of equal freedom. And the law of equal freedom appears constantly in Tucker's writing and uh, he was always goading Spencer from uh, across the lake, as it were, to to become more radical and to end up uh, in, an anarchist. Um, and and uh, so we see the the thread of Spencer all through Tucker's work. Did Tucker ever uh, live to see the Soviet Union or any of the sort of horrible examples of socialism that that later occurred? Uh, he died in the early 20s, I believe, so he didn't get to see um, sort of the bloodbath that was uh, the 20th century. But by the time he died, he'd, he had even grown skeptical of using the word socialism in a positive way. And earlier in his life, he, he was very apt to point out the difference between state socialism and uh and anarchism as a form of socialism and he always he always wanted to show that difference but he always still nevertheless tried to save the word socialism for individualists and by the end of his life i think he was over that he uh he said once and this is a paraphrase but it's it'll be pretty close that capitalism was at least tolerable uh and that that could not be said for socialism for for libertarians today and I guess specifically for, say, non-anarchist libertarians or people who would identify as right libertarians, yep. what what value do the individualist anarchists have and what, what can we learn from them? Sure. Uh, I think that the, the individualist anarchists present uh, a prism through which we can sort of critique um, our political economy. Uh, they lived and they wrote at a time that many of today's libertarians would see as sort of a laissez-faire paradise uh, in the mid and uh, the, the late 19th century. And even then, um, in that environment, 
they were finding all sorts of very good, very trenchant free market critiques of what they were observing in the relationship between powerful actors in the commercial realm and uh, in government. And for today's libertarians, uh, living in a time of uh, cronyism, that's that we're we're always pointing out. I think they give us a, a great opportunity to to sort of revive those critiques and say um, how how are economic actors trying to use the state and politics and coercion to limit legitimate uh, free markets based on um, the sovereignty of the individual and equal liberty and uh, legitimate property rights. Well, yeah, that that all that all sounds good. I I, I'm, I completely agree with you. But the the interesting question too is what should we ignore about them? Because I, I think that they probably were wrong enough about some economic concepts that their observations are not necessarily uh, not to say not that worthwhile, but at least no longer accurate. Right. Uh, uh, perhaps the labor theory of value is a good example. Right. Right. I think yeah, the, they were very orthodox in clinging to. Uh, the classical labor theory of value that uh, today we don't have much use for that um, given given developments that we've made in economic theory. Um, so that would be that would be something to ignore to the extent that, as I mentioned earlier, I think that they vastly vastly overestimated the extent to which we could wipe out things like rent, interest, and profit in a free market. Uh, they posited. A perf- an economy in, in basically perfect equilibrium, and that's not possible. And I think in a real free market, you're still looking at uh, you're still looking at rent, interest, and profit as you know just economic phenomena and not uh, political phenomena. So I think though correct, you're correct. I think those are areas that we could probably steer away from uh, their embrace of the labor theory. But perhaps the the overarching idea that that as libertarians we should be concerned with power and its illegitimate uses and the way it makes the world skewed from some sort of better type of world. Yeah, exactly. I think that you know, to the mistake they made was uh, in one direction, and I think that the mistake today's libertarians often make is uh, forgetting from. From one moment to the next, whether we're actually looking at a free market today or whether we're talking about something uh, very different that involves coercion at almost every level and uh, and an economic system that's polluted by politics essentially at almost every level and, and big in, in big and important ways. And for those of us who I guess are interested in exploring these guys more and exploring their thought. Where would be a good place to start? Is there a particular thinker or a particular book that would be best to pick up and look oh, at I, or read? I yeah, I would have to recommend Tucker as the uh, as the starting point. I think he's an interesting convergence uh, point of convergence for so many uh, so many of the most important radical thinkers of the 19th century. Um, for instance, he was at 21. He was the first English translator of Proudhon. Uh, you find Stirner's influence in his work, um, you, you know, just so much there. And he, he's such a clear and uh, emotive writer. He he writes in a way that it's very polemical and it draws you in. And his his collection, uh, instead of a book, I would really recommend to somebody who wants to get familiar with 
with the uh, the ideas of this group of people. So going going ahead, uh, would you suggest that libertarians maybe a stop thinking of themselves uh, as of the right or adopting that that moniker that has been put on us, and b start thinking. Uh, listening possibly more to people like Occupy Wall Street and other critiques who are carrying some of those those Tucker and individual anarchist critiques forward today. Yeah, I think I definitely think libertarians um should engage the left more. And uh I think what the individualist anarchists show more than anything else is that when it comes to questions of wealth inequality and uh marginalized groups in society, we actually have uh, we actually have the best arguments, and I think if we were to uh, make a bigger point of that and to do a better job of reaching out to the left and showing that, no, we're against a lot of this cronyism and a lot of this business uh, as usual too, I think uh, libertarianism could make a serious headway as a movement um, for sort of regular people. Uh, and I think one of the big problems that we have as libertarians on the PR front is often libertarianism is seen as just an apology for whatever it is that is going on economically uh, in the world now. And, and so I think we, we can make a good critique of the status quo from a free market uh, standpoint. I want to thank Dave for joining us today on Free Thoughts, and I want to thank you for listening. If you have any questions about today's episode, you can find me on Twitter at A Ross P. That's A R O S S P. And you can find me on Twitter at T C Burris. That's T C B U R R U S. And I'm on Twitter as D S Damato. That's D S D A M A T O. Free Thoughts is a project of Libertarianism.org and the Cato Institute and is produced by Evan Banks. To learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.